Grace to you and peace from God our Father, and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text today from the Gospel lesson, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. This is our text. In 1936, a book was published that launched an avalanche of self-help books. In fact, it really uh, spawned a whole industry of additional books, workshops, seminars. The author of the book was Dale Carnegie. Its title, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you've read it. I actually, for whatever reason, have not. Neither had John the Baptist. That becomes pretty obvious, doesn't it, when we, when we read what his sermon material was? Unless things have really changed in the last 2,000 years, greeting people that you're just meeting by calling them snakes is probably not the best way to win friends and influence people. And yet, remarkably, John's message was quite well received by a large number of people. I think that's remarkable. I'd like to use that word remarkable to to guide us into a little deeper discussion today, Um, really prompting three questions. They're printed in your sermon outline. The first question is, isn't it remarkable What has happened to sin? Well, it's practically disappeared. Not from people's lives. But from their vocabulary. One reason Christmas is considered by many to be just a a winter holiday is that for them, sin doesn't exist. The important thing about Christmas for them are, are the decorations and the presents and the music. Instead of what Christmas is really all about, the birth of the Savior. Why would they need a Savior if they don't have any sin? Let's take a step back a minute here. Did you notice the pronoun that I've been using quite a bit so far? It's they. John used a different one. He said, you. He talked to the people in his audience, not about those who weren't. So I'm going to follow his example. Now I'm going to change the pronoun right now and talk about you. When was the last time you identified a specific action in your life as being sin? Don't you have a a, a better chance of talking about a, maybe a mistake that you've made or, or bad habits or, or poor choices. Except it doesn't work that way. A bad choice is when someone with acid reflux goes to bed on a full stomach. I know that from personal experience. But I know from God's word that going to bed with someone you're not married to is not a bad choice, it's a sin. 
Falling in love with, with someone who doesn't love you back might be a mistake. Loving someone or something more than you love God is certainly a sin. Using his name inappropriately is a sin. When you fail to worship, that's a sin. Harming others physically is a sin. Hurting their reputations with what you say is a sin. Remember the Lord's commandments, the Ten Commandments? Those are all sins against those commandments. And they're not the Ten Suggestions. They are the Ten Commandments. God expects obedience. And when we don't obey his commands, that's sin every time. Maybe you think I'm getting carried away here. I'm not. Do you know how many times the Bible uses the word sin or one, in one form or another? In the English language, anyway, from the NIV translation, I can tell you exactly how many times. 917. Why does God talk about sin so much? Is, is he obsessed with it? No. But it is a big deal to him. That's because he knows the effect that sin has, how it harms both the one who is sinning and those who are around that individual. For that reason, sin is such a big deal to God that it cost him the life of his son to make something else happen, something that's even more remarkable than than what we've often done by allowing the word sin to disappear from our vocabulary. I'm talking about the way that God has allowed sin to disappear from his judgment of us. Oh, he's well aware of our sin. He says so 917 times in the Bible. And he knows it is sin, not a mistake, not a poor choice. He has made the remarkable choice to remember our sin no more, to cause it to disappear from his memory. And as a result of that, something else very remarkable has happened. This is point number two in the outline. Isn't it remarkable what has happened to sinners? That's us. Because of God's grace in our lives, we are now able to face up to our sin. To recognize it, to identify it, to confess it. To receive God's forgiveness. To try to put it behind us. All of that's remarkable too. When God confronted Adam and Eve after they had eaten the forbidden fruit, they did none of that. First they tried to hide from God and when that didn't work, they came up with all kinds of excuses why their sin wasn't their fault. And when they did that, they set a pattern that persists to this day. But God has broken that pattern. We don't always ignore our sin or try to call it something else. We're not doing that today. Today in this service, we've already confessed our sin and admitted to God that we are without excuse. And whenever we do that, we are following the pattern set not by Adam and Eve, 
but by all of those people who came to listen to John the Baptist. Because while his preaching probably didn't win him many friends, it certainly did influence a whole lot of people. Remarkably so, in my opinion. I mean, don't you think that that they really would have reacted somehow like, who do you think you are talking to us this way? Instead, they asked this question, what then shall we do? (laughs) They didn't tell him to shut up. They didn't walk away shaking their heads at the audacity of this young preacher. They didn't try to silence him for good by stoning him to death. They listened to him. And then they asked for more. What, were they gluttons for punishment? No, not gluttons for punishment, but starved for God's word. Because God's word had convinced them that they needed to be prepared when this Messiah that that John kept talking about finally arrived. The Messiah. Jesus. He is the explanation for everything that happened by and through John the Baptist. Jesus is why this remarkable man with his remarkable message was given such a remarkable reception by so many people. That can be the only explanation. The baby in that manger on Christmas. That God chose to reveal himself not in his wrath, but in his love. That he chose to reveal his strength by becoming weak, a tiny baby. That he chose to demonstrate his power by hanging helplessly on a cross while his enemies ridiculed him. That's real power. Remarkable power. The the power to humble yourself, to serve others, to forgive those who don't deserve to be forgiven, to sacrifice for those who would never do the same for you. That's real power. Remarkable power. The power of love. God's Love, which gives salvation, which has changed us forever and completely. And that's really point number three in the outline. Isn't it remarkable what's happened since? Since Jesus' death and resurrection. You know, that that little word, since, can be used in various ways. I'm using it in two ways today. Both as because and after. So you could say, since you did this, because you did this, I'll do that. Or you could say, well, since his operation, after his operation, he's been doing a lot better. I'm using it, the word since in both ways today. Because Jesus died for us, we're different. After coming to faith in him, we're different. Both ways. It's remarkable what has happened since. And we see this in the instructions that John gives. First, he speaks to the whole group. He says, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none. The one who has food should do the same. That's remarkable, isn't it? That, that people who are like us, who are naturally selfish, suddenly are happy to share. 
And then look at what John told the tax collectors and the soldiers when they came to him. By the way, don't overlook how remarkable that action is, that that they came to John. Remember, tax collectors were little better than thieves, legally stealing from their own people and, and in doing so supporting the hated Romans. Soldiers were little better than thugs, brutally terrorizing pretty much whomever they pleased. And these were the people who came to John, who was known to be a religious fanatic. And they humbly and honestly asked him what they should do. What kind of answer do you think they expected from him? Well, they had heard him preach. They knew what their lives were like. Did they think that he was just going to slap them on the back and say, good job, reassure them that they didn't need to change a thing? I can't imagine that's what they would have expected, and it's certainly not what they got. What John said to them, basically, was to be fair to others. So, he says, to share with others and to be fair to others. I think that's a pretty good summary of what God tells us in the Ten Commandments. And since we've gone back there, let me go back a little further and revisit what I said earlier, that they're not the ten suggestions, because I think in a way they are. I'm not trying to water anything down. just want to dig into this a little more deeply. Now, I can tell you when I'm given a suggestion, I don't always react the same way. Um, husbands and wives, maybe you've had similar experience to this, but, uh, um, and I think I'm normal in this. That husbands many times think of a, a suggestion from their wife as, as being more of a, of a criticism or maybe an, an accusation. Karen figured out pretty early on in our relationship that, uh, that an unsolicited piece of advice from her to me probably wasn't going to go over too well. So now what she does when I'm working on something around the house is just kind of patiently wait for one of two things to happen. Either I finish the project and and she um, generously tells me I did a great job, or I get stuck and ask for help, which I've gotten a little better, a little better at doing. I know that she has inherited from her dad a a mechanical mind. I don't have that. The kind of mind that can figure out just about anything that's hands-on. So I've learned on occasion to swallow my pride and to ask for her help to uh, maybe help me get an angle right in a construction project or, or to put something back together that I took apart to fix. So what makes the difference? It's not her suggestions. They're always good and they're always well-intended. The difference is my attitude. And that's the connection with the commandments. Since coming to faith in Jesus, we have an entirely different attitude toward those commandments. We don't bristle at them anymore. 
God doesn't have any right to tell me what to do. No, like the tax collectors and the soldiers coming to John, we come to God and ask him how we should live. In other words, we want his suggestions. And so we welcome his commandments. Remarkable, isn't it? Amen. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.